Good morning, all. Happy Lord's Day. If you're out in the hall, come on in. And uh, just a, a little note that has nothing to do with anything we're doing this morning, but I like doing those. Um, in our new facility, we're going to try to not use the sanctuary for Sunday school unless we have to. And the reason is, look at us. I couldn't hug you if my life depended on it right now. So um, anyway, plus I know that Grace uh, stands for grab really awesome chairs early. And so you want to stake out your territory. I understand that. So um, this is not ideal. But I so just feel the love that we're all together and closer, even though we're we're social distancing like crazy um, for reasons unbeknownst to me. So um, here we are. I love the I love the intimacy of this time together. And today, um, speaking of uh, this time together, we are doing Module 4, Session 5. And just to challenge your sanctification, our slides are not working so far. So uh, we can, you can go to the Lord in prayer for that. And, and, and uh, James is back there earning every penny of his paycheck right now trying to figure this out. However, they will be up online um, as they always are. So this is, you might make a note, Module 4, Session 5. And we'll just get started and we'll do it old school where you actually had to listen and take notes without having visuals. Um, And so this is soteriology number four. And we're going to do the doctrines of atonement, divine calling and conversion. If we get to all of them today, we're we're going to spend a lot of time on atonement. That is uh, really the, the centerpiece of soteriology of the study of salvation so we'll pray and then we'll get going on the doctrine of atonement maybe we'll get to divine calling and conversion we'll see our father thank you for this morning it's it's cool and it's um, a great time to be together on the lord's day to come into the warmth of the fellowship of the body and certainly the warmth of the the glories of the word of god we look forward to a rich day this day we look forward to having our hearts thrilled by truth by remembering the cross of Christ. We look forward to partaking in the Lord's table today, later this morning, Lord. We're so thankful for Christ, for his body, for his blood. And we ask you, Lord, to bless our time this morning. Begin to focus our minds on those things that are eternal, those things that are most important, those things that will last forever, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, we'll start in on the atonement. And again... Um, no slides. You can look up there. We we could talk about the blackness of our sin and why we need the light of the of the gospel. But we'll start with the atonement. And I I'm not in a hurry on this. The atonement is the hub upon which all the rest of the spokes of soteriology are connected. It's the middle point. It's the connecting point between all the major doctrines necessary for understanding soteriology. It's a major theme in Scripture. You don't need to necessarily write this down, but just listen to this as a major theme. There are 175 direct references to the death of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The sacrificial death of Christ was predicted by the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 13, the death of the Messiah was proclaimed by John the Baptist all the way back in John 1.29 that he would be the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. Jesus predicted his own sacrificial death 
at least three times that we're aware of from the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark um, is probably the clearest because after every prediction, the apostles do something idiotic that show that they don't get it, that they don't believe yet. The first proclamation by the Christian church, the very first sermons ever given, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, are all centered on the death of Christ. They're all centered on atonement. And the major part of Paul, the major part of Peter, the major part of John's writings, and the writings of Hebrews center on the death of Christ. So you you cannot get away from the atonement. It is part and parcel of soteriology. It is a major, major theme. Now I want to spend a little time just on the historical views of the atonement, uh, just briefly because uh, when we say atonement, that means different things to different people. So as we uh, always do, uh, I'll start with the ones that you should throw away as soon as you hear them, and then we'll end with the, with the correct view. But these are our historic views of the atonement, and some of you have grown up with some of these, depending on what church tradition you came from. Um, the first one is called the classic or the ransom theory. The classic or the ransom theory was held by uh, numerous church fathers, And this sees the atonement of Christ as victory over Satan and the forces of sin and evil. That at the cross, God handed Jesus over to Satan in exchange for the souls of humans held captive to the devil. Now, where where do you see that today? Well, that's the basic view of the charismatic uh, heresy, the charismatic movement. They, They see God and Satan in a dead heat where God barely crosses the finish line ahead of Satan. And so... The classic of the ransom theory really focuses on the role of Satan, that Satan is the reason that we need salvation. And so, uh, so Jesus was given over to Satan to make a trade for the souls of humanity. Then there's the satisfaction theory. The satisfaction theory says that uh, Jesus' death satisfied God's wounded honor. That, uh, that, that God was, was wounded in his honor because we've sinned against him, and so somehow the death of Christ satisfies his honor. Uh, that, that's a, a common liberal viewpoint. United Methodists uh, often talk about, they don't use the word satisfaction theory because they don't know any theology, but they, uh, they speak of it in those terms. The death of Christ is, is just uh, helpful in some way. Did we get slides back? I thought I saw slides. It was, it, it was my hope. There's no scriptural support for the satisfaction theory. Um, what we do have scriptural support for is not satisfying God's wounded honor. Uh, even, to, even to use the word God being wounded is just weird to us. Um, but it satisfies his wrath. Whole different concept. Then there's the moral influence theory. This is also uh, widely held among liberals. Um, and just to side note, what's a liberal? A liberal is somebody who does not, does not believe that scripture is the uh, final basis for authority and that that scripture is nothing more than man's view of God. Therefore, they can make up anything they want. So that's a basic view of liberalism. But uh, the moral influence theory says that the atonement and the death of Christ are really a demonstration of God's love. And that's really about as far as it goes. Think about this logically for a minute. Uh, How many of you would say to your friend, I would like to demonstrate that I love you, so I'm going to kill one of my kids. That makes no sense whatsoever. In fact, when you put it that way, that's, that's a God who is cruel and who is, who is despicable. 
So how is it that uh, the love of God is shown through the death of Christ? And we don't deny that. The love of God is shown through the death of Christ, but not just as moral influence, not just to say, look at what, what sacrifices Christ made, that he was poor and that he was always walking among the poor. Um, liberals love to point to Jesus as a moral example. And they use the phrase, I've talked about this before, um, if you follow the teachings of Jesus, that's code word for I'm not saved and I'm going to hell. Because you don't follow the teachings of Jesus, you follow Christ. And usually the people who say, well, I follow the teachings of Jesus couldn't tell you three of them. They, they have this fantasy picture in their mind that Jesus walked around like Gandhi or like Mother Teresa, just kind of spilling out compassion on everyone. And that is true. He was very compassionate. He also condemned people to hell. He also took um, whips and drove people out of the temple. He cursed the sinners. He, did, he had a full-orbed ministry. So Jesus did not die on the cross just to be a good moral influence. Then there's the governmental view. The governmental view is held by some Armenians. And that is that that Christ's death wasn't a full satisfaction for all sins, but it was a demonstration of divine justice. That Christ's death was sort of a a token or a representative of what God could do um, to the unrepentant sinner. So the reason it's called the governmental view is that the government supposedly represents everyone else. We know now that doesn't really occur in real life. But um, so in other words, Christ is set as an example of you'd better watch out because I'll do this to you if you don't repent. Which again, doesn't deal with satisfaction of wrath. Doesn't deal with payment for sin. Then there's the universal reconciliation view. And we'll get more into this in a bit. The universal reconciliation view says that Christ's death reconciled every human to God. That uh, it's just a different word for universalism. That really, um, and this leads very, very quickly down the slippery slope of all religions lead to God and that Christ died for everyone regardless of how you believe. Well, if that's the case, then the very first sermon recorded in the Gospel of Mark by Jesus Christ had a very simple outline, repent and believe the Gospel. That sermon would be irrelevant if the universal reconciliation view was true. So we'll go with what theologians call The penal substitution theory. Penal as in penalty. The penalty or the penal substitution theory. That with his death, Jesus Christ bore in his body the just penalty for our sins. And by doing so, he substituted for us who were the ones who would receive God's wrath. And he instead appeased God's wrath as a perfect sacrifice. So we would go with the penal substitution theory. And I, I know for some of you, you're saying, well, that's obvious. It's obvious because you've been taught and because you've been, you've been discipled. But uh, the other views, those five that I listed, those are you, some combination of them are by and large the prevailing views among American evangelicals. Um, you ask the person attending the average Baptist church in America, what does the death of Christ mean? What does the atonement mean? And you'll get some version of those first five answers. Most of the time, very few Christians can articulate that Christ died in my place to satisfy God's wrath. By the way, going all the way back to that first view, the classic or ransom theory, uh, who is not present in the penal substitution view? Satan. 
The atonement has nothing to do with Satan. The atonement has to do with God. And it is an accurate statement to say that Christ died for God. He died for God so that his, uh, the wrath of God would be appeased, would be satisfied. It has nothing to do with Satan. Satan is not interested in your souls. Um, you're, Satan's going to end up in the same place that all the, the, the damned of all eternity will end up. And he's not interested in being there. Satan is not keeping score. Well, if I can get more souls than God does, then I win. If we had that, uh, if we had that measure, then Satan will win, won't he? No, that's not the point. Satan wants souls because it gets supposedly to God. He, he couldn't care less about you. What he cares about is denigrating God. Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High. There's no place in the Old Testament that says, I really want to just drag the souls of men to hell. That is a misnomer. So Satan's not part of that uh, equation. So let's go all the way back then. Some say, well, the atonement is, is kind of a New Testament concept. That is, that is wrong. Well, I keep wanting to change slides. There are no slides. <clears throat> so we'll, we're going to talk about uh, atonement in the Old Testament. It's eight years of habit here. Atonement in the Old Testament. The Old Testament sacrificial system um, really gives us a background to understand the death of Christ. And, and you think about this. Think about if there was no Old Testament, if, if the, the, the whole Bible started with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ by Matthew. And then you read this story and this, this special guy named Jesus gets born and then he dies. He's raised from the dead. You would be scratching your head going, what is that about? The Old Testament provides the foundation to understand um, that, ultimate, uh, that ultimate sacrifice. If the Bible started right at the death of Christ, um, we wouldn't have a context with which to grasp the significance of what's one of the major names for Christ in the, in the New Testament. The Lamb of God. Well, that wouldn't make any sense to us. In the Old Testament, the main verb in regard to atonement, it means very simply to cover. It means to cover. And there's quite a debate over whether it means to cover versus to wash away because it can mean both. There's not really enough evidence to be decisive. So we use the context of Old Testament sacrifices and that system. We use the context of Christ to know that the Old Testament system in some way provided atonement, but in other ways was not sufficient. And so we, we kind of leave it there. In some way it provided atonement, but in other ways it was not sufficient. I think the best, very simple explanation I've heard is that the Old Testament sacrificial system, of course, points toward Christ, but it also demonstrated the faithfulness of the Jew who had a genuine internal reality of faith. Now, why would this demonstrate faithfulness? Well, first of all, at the, at the surface level, they're obeying God. If God says, uh, go sacrifice something, well, I love God, I'm going to obey him, then that makes sense to us. But at maybe a more subtle level, the obedient internal reality of faith Jew who makes sacrifice is acknowledging something. Um, he is acknowledging that blood must be shed for my sin. He's acknowledging that I must, um, I must have a sacrifice. 
And this is seen very clearly in the, in the, uh, the Day of Atonement and other sacrifices where the, the supplicant, the worshiper, was to place his head on the sacrifice. And then um, we often have a misnomer, a, a, a wrong picture, that the priest is the one killing the sacrifice. It's the worshiper killing the sacrifice. That he slits the throat of this little lamb that he's kept uh, for, by the way, for Passover for three or four days in his home with his children naming it. This precious little lamb. And so how does the Old Testament provide atonement, the Old Testament sacrificial system? There's some way that it provides atonement, but again, it's not sufficient. It's not permanent. What was the method of atonement in the Old Testament? It is sacrifice. Adam and Eve, a sacrifice was provided by God, Genesis 3.21. Abel and his flocks were for sacrifices, Genesis 4.4. And by the way, from uh, Genesis 9, we know that obedient God-fearers prior to Noah didn't eat meat. And so the concept of eating an animal was foreign to them. Animals were sacrificed as a means of atonement. That was the reason to raise flocks. Noah sacrificed burnt offerings after the flood. Genesis 8. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob established altars of sacrifice. Of course, we have the Passover, Exodus 12. This anticipates the Lamb of God at the cross. We have the Levitical sacrifices, and we call them Levitical because they're prescribed in the book of Leviticus. That's why they're called Levitical sacrifices. You had the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, sin offering, uh, guilt offering. You had a, a celebration offering, the offering of reconciliation. And then, of course, you had the big one, the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. This is the most important religious celebration for the people of Israel. Most important one. This is the day when, when you kind of the whole nation as a whole gets a, a reset. Oh, I do have it up there. I didn't know that. Um, are we on the correct slide? Let me see. All right. Well, I'll just keep going by faith. Uh, so that's atonement in the Old Testament. What were the observations that we could make on the atonement in the Old Testament? And that's the next slide. Some observations we could make. First of all, Old Testament saints were not saved by works. That is, a, that is a, a misnomer. I feel like it's in the top five that I want to preach for the rest of my life. Old Testament saints were saved by grace through faith. If that sounds familiar, that's how God has always saved people and always will. Another observation. Old Testament saints did receive a real yet temporary forgiveness for their sins when the offerings were done with faith. That's about as much as we know about that. If the Old Testament sacrificial system was sufficient unto salvation, then we wouldn't have a new covenant. But it was, it was the beginning. They did receive a real yet temporary forgiveness. Now, the, 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 the question then becomes, um, well, does that mean they, they were saved for a while when they committed enough sins, then they're unsaved, saved for a while, committed enough sins, unsaved? I, I, don't, I can't go that far. Because we do know when we looked at uh, pneumatology, we do know that in the Old Testament there is a, a version of regeneration. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. From then on, Abraham's salvation was not dependent on whether or not he uh, performed sacrifices and, and kept the law. There wasn't even a law to keep yet. So how would we view this then? I, I think we would view this the same way that we view uh, 1 John 1, 9. 
And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That for the truly saved Jew, the sacrificial system is a means of maintaining fellowship with God. Does that make sense? You're not maintaining your salvation. You're maintaining fellowship with God. We would also observe that Old Testament sacrifices were limited. They were obviously not able to fully atone for sin. Psalm 40, verse 6, Psalm 51, verse 16, Hosea 6, 6, Micah chapter 6 indicates this limitation. They also couldn't clear the conscience. They couldn't clear the conscience. While we do believe that there is a version of regeneration for the Old Testament saint, um, the full-on indwelling of the Spirit is unique to the, to the New Covenant. And so they couldn't clear the conscience. Why couldn't it clear the conscience? Well, because it's only the sacrifice of Christ that can do that. It's only Christ that can truly do that. They were also limited in they couldn't take away sins in a real sense. What, what do we mean by this? If you owe somebody $100,000 and you say, here's 10 bucks, will you uh, take away my sin that per, or take away my debt? That person would say, I've taken away $10 worth of your debt. That's not even the great illustration. How about this? You owe somebody $100 trillion and you give them a dollar. Will this take away part of my debt? Yeah, do this 999 trillion more times and then maybe we're getting close. And even that's not a good illustration because you cannot do enough good works. However, the Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward Christ. Why is it that Christ's sacrifice takes away sins? Because his sacrifice was perfect and it was a one-for-one uh, offering. A goat cannot take away the sacrifice or take away the sin of somebody made in the image of God. It has to be somebody made in the image of God who takes away that sin. And of course, they had to be continually repeated. I, I remember as a young man being really just moved by one phrase I read in a book. Something about the countless hundreds of millions of gallons of blood spilled in the Old Testament to sacrifice and it still wasn't enough. And so how would we summarize the Old Testament sacrificial limitation? When the Old Testament saints made an offering based in faith, there's real forgiveness. But the value of that forgiveness is ultimately based in the value of the death of Christ, not in the value of the death of that animal. Does that make sense? So that's why Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. Something that will be paid later as righteousness. And one last observation, Old Testament sacrifices obviously point beyond themselves typologically. They're a type to the perfect once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. See also the entire book of Hebrews. That glorious phrase, once for all. Can you imagine being a Jew who has lived under the sacrificial system, is saturated in the history of Israel, saturated in the Old Testament, understanding fully that every year at Passover they must sacrifice a lamb for sin. And just this, this sense of hopelessness that I, I own all these animals and I have to keep sacrificing them and it's never enough. And then a Jew reads the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, once for all. That's freeing. That's, that's total liberty. So atonement in the Old Testament, very clearly pointing toward Christ. How about atonement in the New Testament? And that would be the next slide. 
Atonement in the New Testament. We'll start with the Gospels. Just a, just a few verses here. John 1, 29. John the Baptist declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We get to the atonement very quickly in the, in the New Testament. Luke twenty two nineteen. Jesus said, This is my body given for you. How important is the atonement? We act it out in the Lord's table on a regular basis in the church at the command of Christ. This is my body given for you. In Luke twenty two thirty seven, Jesus was quoting or citing rather Isaiah fifty three twelve. He said, For I tell you that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And here's his quote. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And so Jesus saw himself as the suffering servant who would give his life for others. You remember in the book of Luke that uh, Jesus made this mysterious statement where he said, uh, get some swords. And, you know, these are, these are fishermen. So they coughed up a couple of swords, probably something rusty that they found in the back of their boat or something. And, okay, we have, we have swords. And Jesus said, that's enough. Let's go. And they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Why did Jesus have the, the, the disciples carrying a couple of swords? And by the way, carrying some, some rucksacks. And, because what did they look like? They sort of look like a band of ruffians. They look like criminals. He must be numbered with the transgressors. Mark 10, 45. In Matthew 28, Jesus viewed the giving of his life as a ransom. Don't confuse that with ransom theory where the ransom is being paid to Satan. This is a ransom paid to God. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What else did Jesus say when you compare Satan and God? He said, do not fear the one who can kill the body. That's Satan. He said, fear the one who can cast the soul into hell. That's God. John 15, 13, Jesus said he would lay down his life for his friends. That's sacrificial atonement. In John eleven forty nine and 50, Caiaphas declared that it was better for one man to die than for a nation to perish. Ironically, an unbeliever making this, this prophetic utterance by the power of God. That's in the Gospels. How about uh, in Paul's writings? Paul is the master of the atonement. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Galatians 3, 13, Christ became a curse for us. Galatians 1, 4, Christ gave himself for our sins. And I think I'm going to just take a, I'm just going to take a detour here. And this is a story worth telling. And, and I'd like to tell it to you right now. Um, it's, you've, if you've heard it, uh, if you're not blessed by this, I don't know what to tell you, but I, I, I know a man and, uh, he's a TMS graduate. He's been a pastor for many years in the States now, but early on in his, uh, in his ministry career, he and his wife and one other couple went to a, a remote island in the South Pacific and they found a people that basically had never really had any contact with, with others. And these people were called the Taliabu. And in the Taliabu, and there's a, there's a whole movie made about it. It's, it's, a, it's a terribly made movie, but it's a great story. Um, these people, the Taliabu, they were backwards. They were primitive. 
They had developed their own religious system. They all lived in huts where they stored the bones of their ancestors um, above them in shelves. And I've seen pictures of this, these skeletons all around. Uh, Talk about home decor. Well, they, uh, they came to this belief that someday someone would come tell them how these bones can come to life. And this was a, a story passed down to the Taliabu for years and years and years. So these two couples arrive, and they first of all, they have to spend a couple years just learning the language. These people have no context with which to understand the gospel. So in other words, you can't go to these people and say, let me tell you about Jesus. There's no context. So um, a, a couple of them were artists, and so they began this extensive process while they were... Um, while they were learning the language, this extensive process of drawing pictures of every major story beginning with creation, going all the way through so that they were ready to then begin um, telling. They told these people, we know how, uh, how the bones of the dead can be raised. We know how you can have, uh, you can have a relationship with the one who made you. Because that's what they believe. They believe that there must be some God that made everything. And so they, had, they, they prepared for several years um, being there. And so they, the, the people were so excited about this that they built a meeting hall. They, they were so eager to hear this incredible story. They built this meeting hall, which basically was a, was a giant deck with three walls made of, of thatching and you know, a typical kind of South Pacific uh, island building you might have seen in books. And so they built this meeting hall. They prepared and prepared and par- prepared and they finally began, and they began by telling the story of, of creation. And so they had these pictures that they had, they had prepared, and they began telling the story that there is a, a, a God, and his, he is the creator, and his name is Yahweh. And so they were just enthralled that they heard the name of God for the first time. And they kept listening, and they would come night after night after night telling these stories. They got all the way through um, the Passover in Exodus 12, and they did begin explaining at that point that you see the Passover lamb is representative, that there's a, there is a lamb, a sacrifice, because now because of the Old Testament sacrificial system, they had an understanding of what atonement means. But they said, but a lamb can't sacrifice for your sins and for mine. There has to be a Passover lamb. There has to be a Passover lamb who is a man. And so... They didn't use the name of Jesus yet because there wasn't a context for them. They, they, they hadn't gotten to the prophecies of Christ. There wasn't a way for them to understand this. Well, right after this time, one of the older gentlemen got very sick. One of the, the, one of the elders in the village, one of the villages got sick and he, he was dying. And these missionaries came to his bedside. And this man... Knowing what he knew, all he knew was he said, I believe in my Passover lamb. I believe in the one who would then come to sacrifice for my sins and I know I will see my Passover lamb. That's the name by which he knew him. So the atonement, it has to be consistent. Old Testament to New Testament, it points to Christ. And for this man, by the power of the Spirit of God, it was instinctive for him. So the atonement doesn't start in Matthew 1.1. Atonement goes all the way back to God's promise to Adam and Eve. He said, if you sin, you will die. But they didn't. Why? Because God atoned for their sin. 
So you have to look at the atonement in, in the big picture, the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. I don't think we'll get to everything, but I do want to do some of the soteriological concepts related to atonement. That's the next slide since our little deal isn't working yet. We've already talked about this. It can be a confusing word, the word ransom. And again, I think the easiest way to, to remember what is right and what is not right about the word ransom, what is not right is that Satan was not paid a ransom. What is right is that God was paid a ransom, that Christ delivered us from the spiritual bondage of sin. We were set free. Um, all, of the, all of the word pictures you, you associate with the idea of ransom, of freedom, of being released from a captor and so forth. The word sacrifice, obviously a, a big part of atonement. Christ is the once for all sacrifice. That incredible phrase, once for all, that is, is life-changing. Big word, substitution, hugely important. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is, that is basically the doctrine of justification, kind of in, in a nutshell. The exchange of the life of Christ, his perfect life for your imperfect life, the exchange of the death of Christ, which was capable of satisfying the wrath of God for your life, your death, which can never satisfy the wrath of God because an imperfect sacrifice can't make that payment. That's why hell is for eternity. It, it can never make payment. So ransom, sacrifice, substitution, in that substitution category, we also see 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You also have the important word redemption. It's from a Greek word that means to purchase in the marketplace. And that's very similar to ransom, isn't it? There's a payment that's made. There's a payment. Uh, the only difference is, is that... Um, when we were paid for, when Christ redeemed us from our sins, we didn't know we needed to be redeemed and we didn't care uh, to be redeemed. And yet he did so anyway. Then the big word, propitiation. Propitiation, this is a, an English word from a, a Latin combined word, pro, forward, and peteres, petition. It's, it's a means, it means to make someone look on you with favor. To be favorably disposed. And so what is the propitiation that Christ accomplished? It is to have God the Father look on you with favor. To satisfy. I, I think a great word to go along with propitiation is satisfaction. That it satisfies the wrath of God. The payment is made. Therefore, he is turned aside from his wrath. He is favorably disposed. And all of a sudden now the, the floodgates of the blessings of God flow into the life of the Christian. So much so that Ephesians 1 says that, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's propitiation. And then an important word, reconciliation. That is the removal of the barrier between God and man. Romans 5.11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received Reconciliation. And I think uh, this is a classic word picture, but it's, it's something for us to, to maybe hang on to a little bit. And it's, it's a, it's a low-level illustration. But if you picture that you have been accused of a crime and you are guilty of those crimes and you stand before a judge <clears throat> and that judge uh, could rightly pass sentence on you, but, and this is an illustration you've all heard, 
But somebody else comes in, and it is the judge's son, and the judge's son stands in your place and takes the penalty that was, that was rightfully yours. We would say, oh, we understand that. We understand justification. And so the judge then pours his wrath on the son instead of on you. But that's not the end of the story. Because of that act of Christ, not only are we justified, but we're reconciled. That the judge takes off his, his uh, judicial robes and he now says, I am your father and you are my child. You were adopted into my house. Let me build a house for you. Let me spend all of eternity with you. I want to spend all of eternity, you to spend all of eternity with me. That it's not just that you, you, are, you are set free from sin and that you of sin it means that you now have a relationship with the judge and it's eternal that's reconciliation that there's a there's a love relationship now that's so much further than just thinking about the judicial aspect of salvation so those are just some important terms um, related to to soteriology now i want to start talking about the extent of the atonement and just a little note here, I'm, I'm having you read you know, Bruce Demarest. And when you get to the section on the atonement, he has very much a more of an unlimited atonement view. And so just understand, as we always say in BTI, that you should uh, read judiciously and read uh, critically. That you know, If we had one single book that agreed with everything we have, or everything that we know to be true, and that's the only book we carry in our bookstore, we just have a bunch of Bibles on the shelf, and that would be it. So we read critically and we read judiciously. But Demarus does have more of an unlimited atonement view, just so you know, wondering why that may seem contradictory. He has so many other wonderful um, uh, uh, contributions that, of course, we want to continue learning from him. So the extent of the atonement basically asks the question, and we won't get to finish this today, basically asks the question, for whom did Christ die? Did he die for the elect only or for the sins of every person? And we're not going to do this nearly enough justice. I just want to kind of hit some high points. Let's first talk about limited atonement or limited redemption or particular redemption. We, we like the word limited atonement um, because it is the L in TULIP. And like we've said before, tupup just doesn't make as much sense. But limited atonement, how would we define this? The, the atonement is limited to a definite or a particular number of people. That's the phrase particular redemption. A definite or particular number of people. And who are those people? They are the elect of God. They're God's elect. That Christ's death was not to make possible the salvation of all human beings, but to make certain the salvation of the elect. And so the atonement is not what some have called provisional, it's actual. That Christ actually purchased salvation for the elect. I think it's important to not go overboard on this. Those who believe in universal atonement are not the same as those who believe in universalism. What's the difference? Those who believe in your universal atonement can still believe that that not all people will be saved and they will pay the penalty for their sins for all eternity. That's those who believe in universal atonement. And that would be the majority of American evangelicalism, to be honest with you, if you really got them down to brass tacks. Universalism is different. It is absolutely heretical. And that says that all people will be saved regardless of their response to the gospel, which now makes the gospel really uh, irrelevant. 
So we don't want to go overboard there. It's also possible to strongly believe or think you believe at least the other major four points of Calvinism and still hold the universal atonement. Now, I've made the case before that if you're really, truly honest, uh, you, you can't. There's no such thing as a four point Calvinist. That's like saying there's a two legged stool. It can't stand up. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But that's you know, most people don't think at that level and, and really challenge their own assumptions. And we also would say that holding the universal atonement doesn't make you an Arminian. It's possible to kind of be a mixture. Um, The end result is the same. Regardless of what you believe, those God has elected will ultimately have their sins forgiven and be in heaven. That's the end result. And we would also say that uh, believing in limited atonement isn't based on one or two killer uh, proof texts, but rather an accumulation of biblical evidence, which hopefully will give just a very small taste of here Uh, let me just give you a really more of a list than anything of passages that indicate and that's the next slide passages that indicate that christ died for a particular group of people i'm not going to go into all the arguments it just shows that there are uh, there is an argument that christ died for a particular group matthew 121 she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins. That's a, however you define his people, there is a particular people. The argument here is that Jesus is coming to save his people, not every single person. Now, the immediate context there, obviously, is Israel doesn't explicitly teach a general statement about limited atonement, but it does prove that there is a group that Jesus is coming specifically to save. And I've given you a list of some other scriptures there. Uh, John 10 15 and 16, Acts 20, 28, Matthew 20, 28, Matthew 26, 20. I think one of the more explicit evidences is found in Romans 8, 32 and 33. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elected? Is God who justifies? That's a, that's a pretty key passage. You might say, well, us all is all of humanity. But immediately he says, us all are the ones who get all things from God. That can't be everyone. And in that same context, you have the mention of God's elect. That's pretty strong, pretty strong argument. You also have passages that indicate that the objects of God's love are selective, that he doesn't love everyone with the same love. If you've ever heard a sermon on God loves everyone in the world... That's great, but not the same way. Not in the same way. God's love is shown to all in that people get to breathe. They get to eat his food, drink his water, walk on his earth, and so forth. The Romans 1, 7, Romans 8, 29, Romans 9, 13, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God's love is selective and it is not equal. Now, if you're tempted to say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't, that doesn't line up with the God that I know. If I could rephrase for you, that doesn't line up with the God that I've been lied to about. Because that's not truth. So we have to go with truth. And the truth is, is that God's love is not equal for all people. That's what the Bible says. So I th- I'm going to take a peek here. I think we're going to, um, I think I'm going to just do one more little section. And that will be uh, just some logical arguments for limited atonement. And then we're going to turn around next time and we'll look at universal atonement and see if those, those arguments hold water. But let's do one more. Logical arguments for limited atonement. 
First logical argument, if the doctrines of election and irresistible grace are limited to the elect, then why would the atonement be universal? Because honestly, if you say, well, Jesus died so that potentially all people could be saved, that's unlimited atonement, then how can you believe that there is a group of people called the elect? If you truly believe that, that's why I say I don't think it's actually intellectually honest to say I'm a four-point Calvinist. I don't think that's possible. It's a two-legged stool. Another logical argument, the unlimited atonement view necessitates what some have called double payment for sins. It says that Christ died for the sins of all people, but non-believers will also pay for their sins in hell. That's a double payment. That's a weaker argument, but it's still valid in that it at least helps the, uh, helps the overall uh, push toward limited atonement. Another argument, that unlimited atonement is not consistent within the workings of the triune God in regards to salvation. We say that the Father elects certain individuals to salvation, We say that the Holy Spirit works to bring the elect to salvation. But then when it comes to the work of Christ, he's providing salvation for all people. So that's very inconsistent. It almost, I think you could make the argument that this puts one member of the Trinity at odds with the other two members. And of course, we wouldn't ever want to say that. And one more logical argument for limited atonement. Limited atonement advocates, and I I think I'd put myself in this category, believe that limited atonement is the highest view of atonement. It's a higher view of atonement. That the atonement of Christ isn't provisional. It's not hopeful. It's, it's not um, something that is potential. But the atonement is actual. That Jesus purchased actual salvation for some. He didn't just provide the way of salvation hoping that human beings would trust in it. So in other words, you could say it this way, When Christ died on the cross, that guaranteed your salvation. God wasn't biting his nails, waiting all the way to the moment that you would receive Christ. It was already a foregone conclusion. Ephesians 1 tells us this very clearly. So the logical arguments for limited atonement are are pretty solid. Um, Next time we'll look at universal atonement that says that Christ died for every person, but his death is effective for only those who believe in Christ. It's kind of a a little bit of a cop-out, and we'll go through those arguments and then evaluate them because I think you'll see that it really doesn't hold water and it doesn't stand the test of some scrutiny. So um, we've said this before, but we cannot base theology on what I wish God did. We can't base theology on, on the view of God that I think is righteous. We base theology on only what the Word of God says. And if the Word of God says that God chose some for salvation and not others and that Christ died for some, not for all, then that's, that's the truth. And the truth is the only thing that saves. So um, we'll stop there and we'll do universal atonement. Kind of a terrible place to start, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to the truth after that. So we'll stop there. Let's pray and then we'll uh, be done for a little bit here. Thank you, Father, for the truth. So clearly enumerated in your word, it's, it's, these are truths that a child can understand and yet we'll spend all of eternity marveling and in awe at the depths and the wonders and the joys of the eternal nature of truth represented most ultimately in your own character, in who you are. And Lord, for us who this morning have 
considered the atonement of Christ, I, I think that it's very clear that the obvious application for us and the obvious response is gratitude and thankfulness that we, as it were, drop to our knees in, in utter humility and thankfulness that before we were even born, God had a plan to atone for our sins. That when Jesus cried, it is finished on the cross, that applied to the salvation of all who believe on this day. And so we respond in gratitude and thankfulness. We're so grateful to you for salvation, Lord. And while we want to plumb the, the, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of Christ, at a child's level, we say thank you for forgiving us of our sins. And we are here this day to give Christ honor and to give him thanks for that very reason. And we pray in his name. Amen.